Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome to another episode of the Pod Control Podcast. Uh, if you were with us last week, we we started kicked off a discussion on myths and mis- misperceptions. Uh, we picked up and and we hear when we talk to people in the community or customers or you know just just things we we've seen kind of in the news recently. So we're going to continue that along. Uh, last time we were talking a lot about applications and sort of the the front end piece of it, and and some of the stuff we're going to cover today is more on the back end, sort of the operations architecture type stuff. Rio, uh, ready to jump right in, Brian? Yeah, ready to go. I think um, you know we, we we tried to break this up partially for for time, but also you know as much as everybody is seeing more and more blending of their 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 dev teams and their ops teams, you know that we, we still see a certain amount of you know just a, a different mindset or the teams are still siloed. So we thought it'd be valuable to break them up somewhat. So depending on your, your orientation towards, you know, where you fit in the technology landscape, like one show might, might fit better for you, but the other one might, might give you a new perspective too. So, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully this is a good way to break up these, these different, uh, perspectives and myths and mythology, myth, myths and uh, misperceptions. So where do you want to start? Um, I think, I think the first place is if we get into the sort of the overall architecture, um, kind of view of how Kubernetes is built. And uh, one, of the, one of the ones that I've been starting to hear more and more uh, lately is multi-tenancy. Yeah. So a lot of talk around like, well, you know, how, how, how do we split up our kube cluster? How do we limit what they talk, you know, do I need a, cl- how many clusters do I need? You know, where, who gets access to what? And, and, and kind of it seems like a, the idea that it's like, well, you can't really do it with Kubernetes. It's sort of a, a single purpose kind of cluster mentality. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, the, the first thing is, I think people will try and, and, and have different uh, definitions of multi-tenancy. Um, so I, I don't want us to necessarily make a, a blank, kind of a blanket assumption of, of what everybody means. But I, I think in general, what, that, what, it, what we see most people mean is, um, I want to have uh, you know, one, for the most part, sort of one, one infrastructure that we can, uh, that we can, we can segment, we can isolate, uh, for security boundaries. Uh, we have the ability to sort of isolate it for performance boundaries. Um, and, and we, we want to, you know, be able to have the operational team, um, have certain visibility to things. We want to have the development teams have maybe different visibility to things. Um, so it's, it, it's very much about sort of logical separation, um, logical segmentation without, you know, essentially building replications of things over and over again so that the cost becomes prohibitive, right? You don't necessarily want to give everybody their own stuff because, you know, computers are very good at being, uh, you know, segmented and isolated uh, through software these days. Yeah, I think I think that that's a key thing that you brought up is sort of like what's your definition, um, which we saw it kind of even the virtualization days and you know people building VMware stuff and VLX like well is this multi tenant like well, what does that mean what layers does it have to happen at um, and I think you hit on the high level stuff of kind of that separation piece and I think for, you know from the get go obviously Kube was was built for that you know with the concept of namespaces and kind of limiting people and now with our back limiting people to namespaces and I think it's just gotten more mature uh, with the options with things like, you know, some of the the network policy and CNI plugins. Um, so then people, users can kind of determine what they mean by multi-tenancy. So, you know, for some, just different namespaces may be plenty. Uh, you know, that's pretty much kind of, I think, how it works with Borg at Google. But um, for um, for a lot of enterprises, they want more detailed this this 
namespace can't talk to this one over the network kind of thing without going back out to uh, another layer. Um, so, th- so those capabilities are there. So, um, you know, you have to really define what you mean and then see if there's a thing that specifically limits you from, you know, dr- crossing those boundaries uh, from a multi-tenancy perspective. Because I would say, Coop, just like any sort of system, um, less different things to manage, the better. So don't make a whole ton of clusters just because right. so if, if you if it should be a conscious decision right so if, if it's like no we coop doesn't do this one thing we need to do across sort of cluster boundaries so we're definitely going to do multiple clusters right right yeah and, and i think you know we we've seen from an open shift perspective and again this is just kind of from a transparency or, or experience perspective uh you know we've we've always made OpenShift um, have a huge focus around multi-tenancy. And, and again, that comes from kind of an enter- enterprise lineage with, with Red Hat and, and the types of customers we work with. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw early on was a couple of things, and this is maybe some checkbox things for people to go through in their mind. Um, you know, do you feel like the, the native capabilities of Kubernetes, you know, just namespaces and labels um, is going to be enough? Because, uh, you know, but by default, until you start getting into some more advanced RBAC, till you start getting into, you know, leveraging more advanced network policy things that are beginning to come into Kube, um, you know, there were some ability for, uh, you know, kind of a single super user to see across, um, you know, the objects within a within a namespace and so forth. So uh, there, there's some things there to check a look at, um, you know, something for people to be aware of, like not every networking implementation that is CNI compliant um, also does multi-tenancy. You know, some of them are CNI compliant from a network perspective, but they're, they don't all have the ability to do, you know, very fine-grained isolation or performance and so forth. Um, that was another area that we've seen. And then, you know, we, we've had a concept in OpenShift for a long time called projects, and projects were sort of a superset of, of OpenShift, or a superset of Kubernetes, which allowed us to put a framework together that that really was very granular very automated multi-tenancy. And, and that's something that, um, you know, some of that is, is come back into, uh, into, into Kubernetes, but some of it is still, you know, kind of, um, open shift and open shift origin specific. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's one of those, you know, the devil's in the details type of thing, but the idea that it's not there at all is, I think is definitely a, a misperception. Right. The, the other thing I'd point out around multi-tenancy that people kind of need to think about, and, and we're seeing this, um, with various projects that come along, there's, there's the concept of multi-tenancy of like, here's resources and here's my application. And then there's the concept of, um, you know, kind of platform level services, right? So whether that's logging or monitoring or, you know, we'll have things like service meshes. Um, there are there are a lot of conversations that are still going on about, you know, how do you make those things multi-tenant? Um, and, you know, part of it is like, how do I do that? But then there's also the question of, you know, things like, do I have one service mesh per cluster? Do I allow each tenant to have their own service mesh? Um, do I want to let the developers have access to the service mesh? Do they know enough to, to be dangerous? Do I not? Um, so, you know, multi-tenancy is still something that, like we said, you, you kind of have to really understand what do you want out of multi-tenancy and then really start to explore, um, you know, what does that mean uh, in terms of your implementation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a key is your your particular implementation. How does it how does it fit there? Right, right. Um, okay, so I, I think that's good. I think we could probably have an entire show about multi tenancy at some point. <laughs> we might need to dig into it. Um, another one that I heard recently was sort of you know myths or misperception was this idea that you know developers should never 
ever have to care about Kubernetes. They should never even have awareness of a Kubernetes. Kubernetes is really just for operators, right? Operators set it up and developers shouldn't have to care about any of that stuff like pods or, uh, you know, resource groups or labels or schedulers. Like what, what, what are you finding in reality? Is that, is that true? Um, I think, I think it's one of those, um, you know, magic expensive consulting hour answers of it depends. Um, it depends on, you know, kind of your environment and we definitely see places where, you know, the developers don't even know Kubernetes. It's what's running the applications. They're just, you know, kind of committing to, uh, to GitHub or whatever. And the CI systems doing the building and then the operators are are kind of handling the kube stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think to say that's the majority of the cases or, you know, that's how it should be is is definitely uh, a myth. Uh, it's it to me it's the equivalent of saying like well developers should just write Docker files and then hand those Docker files and the build and Docker run and all that stuff is just for operators like well I mean like theoretically maybe but you know there's still it's the you know kind of development process if you've ever you know screwed around with with writing software is um, it, it doesn't work a lot initially and there's a lot of you know running it locally and things like that and and then some of the things that you can pass down to the platform. Uh, that's one of the beauties of Kubernetes is say something like building some sort of availability um, with uh, replica sets and stuff like that is as a developer, it exposes a lot of power understanding how those things work. So you can decide how you write your application and say like, well, if I save state into this, you know, to say this key value store, um, then there's no, you know, per instance state for my application at the, at this pod. So, you know what, it's built really well to scale out wide because I know how that works in Kubernetes. And I think it's those, those kind of pieces of it is if you, you may not, you know, need to know all the nitty gritty details, like how CNI plugins work and, and things like that, but definitely seeing developers caring about sort of how the app gets run and in, in plenty of cases running uh, their own kube clusters or consuming them from public cloud vendors and things like that where it's like, well, yeah, I, I wrote this. I, I have this Docker image now or a couple Docker images that are my app, but now I want to kind of see how it runs and kind of what the failure modes are and tweak my code based on how, you know what, oh, look, this is how long it takes Kubernetes to recover this this pod. So, you know, I need to kind of account for that in my in my code and all that type of stuff. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think um – you know, I, I kind of understand where this might be coming from. Again, a lot of times these things start and then kind of never go away. Um, you know, back in the day, a couple of years ago and, and so forth, like it was sort of complicated to get Kubernetes running. Um, there really were only a couple of type of, of scheduled things that you could do with it. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, you, you could say, well, you know, again, developer takes some code, puts it in a container if they even want to do that. And, uh, and then let the, let the operations team deal with all the, that, I think nowadays, given the fact that we've got, uh, you know, mini queue, mini shift, um, you know, really quick ways to get Kubernetes up and running either on your laptop in a public cloud, wherever, um, there's no reason why developers shouldn't have more visibility, right? We, we give them tools like, like Helm or, or OpenShift templates. Um, we're giving them the ability to, to go see what happens in reality, right? Go, go make, go take your code and see how it runs. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a limited statement. If you're, if you're making a statement like that, and then at the same time, maybe you're saying, well, you know, you need to be doing SRE, you need to have SREs, you need to be doing DevOps. Well, it's kind of hard to say like, you should have more knowledge, cross-functional knowledge within the team, and then sort of say, well, but we're going to deploy this tool that's only relevant for, you know, half the team, right? It's kind of a contradiction and it does make it hard to say like, well, then 
how are you going to have common commonality of language? How can you explain scenarios to each other? Yeah, yeah, I think that is kind of a, uh, you know, is a bit ironic when it comes to that. like, oh, like dev and ops. And they're like, this is an ops thing. Dev shouldn't care. I'm like, well, n- n- I thought we just said dev should care about ops and ops should care about dev. Right, right, right. Or we, we want SREs that can write code and we want devs that carry pagers. And yeah. Um, okay, what's next on your list? Um, the big one I see starting to emerge uh, is around sort of compatibility mm-hmm. um, and updating and things like that. And this was a kind of, to me, uh, a bit of a headache in the OpenStack days when it came to, well, hey, you have all these different sort of distros and services and, you know, then the versioning and they're like, what's compatible? And it started this whole like DEF core thing and then, you know, trying to, you know, what's compatible. And I think that was something that Kubernetes has done really good um, is or really well from there is, is sort of like learn from that approach and say like, well, I think, you know, we're overcomplicating things. If it's, you know, how do we test how do we test Kube, you know, when, when we make commits, uh, especially to the client, like, well, we have a whole bunch of end-to-end tests that we run, and if they successfully pass, that means it all works. Uh, so the fact that the, you know, we, we've talked about in previous episodes, the, um, you know, um, Kubernetes, conforming Kubernetes uh, thing that's gone through the, the CNCF, this is pretty much what it is, like, well, you take your Kubernetes thing and, and you run this end-to-end test against it. And if it passes, guess what? You're conformant to to what Kubernetes is, so you can call it kube, and, and away we go. And I think uh, what's interesting around that is we're now seeing a lot of talk about, well, this our thing, or is this, or questions asking, like, is this GKE, you know, Google Kubernetes service? Is it the Kubernetes engine? Is this compatible with this? Is, is Will your version stay compatible? And it's like, well, they're running Kubernetes, yeah. And if they've passed the test, then why wouldn't it be <laughs> compatible? Yeah, I think the other couple of things I see that that can be confusing for people in this is, um, so, like the, again, this goes back to you know what what is you know like the first question we had in the in the discussion from last week, like is Kubernetes a platform? And I think we need to remember. So let's take GKE for example, right? When I spin up GKE, not only do I get you know, the, the Kubernetes engine that, that Google is providing and managing for me, but they're wiring together the network for me. They're wiring together, uh, you know, Google uh, storage services for me. Um, they're wiring together Google uh, authentication and some security services for me, potentially VPC services for me. Um, and so, you know, for somebody to say, well, we're, we're GKE compatible, maybe to the point of saying we're Kubernetes, we're, we're like we run the same version of Kubernetes that they run. But I'm I'm concerned that there's going to be this misperception that people think like, oh, okay, well, I didn't have to do any of that stuff uh, when I set up my GKE cluster. I didn't have to worry about networking. I didn't have to really worry about storage. I checked a box and some things happened. Um, and then if I wanted to run this in my own environment or, for example, they said, well, I'm going to go spin up the, you know, the Azure container service that you know, there are differences there because there are, you know, embedded capabilities that, that are also there in order to make it possible to network containers together, store data, make sure they're secure, isolate them, you know, where's your registry and so forth. So I think people have to be careful in, in confusing the compatibility with the version of Kubernetes, you know, which is sort of Kubernetes certified or conformant with the expectation of the user experience that you get from a specific platform or a specific service, right? Um, the platform or the service is made up of a lot more things than Kubernetes. Um, Kubernetes is, like you said, you know, running a certain set of tests against the API and the implementation of just Kubernetes. 
Yeah, I think I think that's that's always the same thing. It's even the 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 um, OpenStack days. Like, well, the API is compatible. It's like, well, if you have a different, you know, uh, Neutron plugin underneath that has different capabilities, and and you wrote your code or Terraform or whatever you're using to talk to it, and it's taking advantage of those capabilities that don't exist in this other area. Well, then it's it's not gonna. It's technically compatible, but you know, operationally isn't, and, and won't actually you know, do that for, for real. So I think, yeah, I think that's definitely something that's overplayed. Uh, you want, you don't want all these sort of crazy mutated, you know, Kubernetes things out there that don't sort of work. So I think, I think we're past that though as a community where, uh, when that conforming Kubernetes thing came up, but pretty much everyone passed that with flying colors pretty easily. So I right. think that piece of it's set. Yep. Um, I think the the second piece, like you said, is the the other. Well, depends how your Kubernetes deployed because it's not a platform on its own. It's the other stuff you plug in. Um, and and honestly, I think that some of that stuff is is overblown as well, right? Where it's it's you know the co- it's like Docker can or o- OCI com- compatible containers will run any place that'll run them, and there's you know little differences here and there, but. Mm-hmm. I think some of kind of the concerns with this, you know, uh, I think goes back to that that magic thing that everyone's chasing of this, like, oh, we're going to have all these environments spread across multiple clouds in our data center. We're just going to, like, magically move uh, containers and apps all around based on load and, and you know, spot pricing. And, and it's just – it just doesn't happen. There's just too many – kind of like little things that break that and and focusing on that sort of obsession seems to uh, get people uh, wasting a lot of time kind right. of navel gazing on that right right yeah and and again I, you know I, I think it's important for people to you know whatever implementation you choose um, you know n- know what's going on right so let me I'll, I'll give you one other sort of small example but it, it could become like a big example so you know it's pretty commonplace these days that um, while kubernetes doesn't embed a registry, right? The Kubernetes community has said like, yes, we need a container registry, but no, there isn't sort of a Kubernetes container registry. You can use, you know, public ones, you can use private ones, you can use open source ones, whatever. Um, but the implementation of them, there's still a lot of variation in there. And and what you don't want people to sort of get confused about is saying, well, okay, um, I'm going to use a registry and that registry uh, comes with scanning, comes with signing, comes with um, you know, everything is encrypted on the back end. And oh, by the way, um, I read somewhere that there's this container registry that will do geo replication of all the data that's within there. Um, here's the reality. Yes, there are implementations that are out there that do that. There are also implementations out there that don't do anywhere close to that. And, or they don't do that by default. You would have to set up a whole lot of different things to make that work. So just be, be cautious about sort of expecting that, uh, your implementation, um, is going to be anything more than Kubernetes compatible and the other things you need, you know, figure out, do I need to do that? Does that come by default? Does somebody else do that for me? And just kind of understand, um, kind of the broader scope of your architecture and and how it's going to operate. Um, so the other, the flip side of that is, um, kind of this thing, and we're going to, we're, we're going to end up having two topics that, that kind of walk around this, um, this idea that, um, and we, we've had this with open source forever, so it's not really a Kubernetes specific thing, but this idea of because Kubernetes moves so quickly and, and we hear a lot of companies, you know, are trying to figure out like, what do I do with the fact that Kubernetes gets an update every quarter? And we're not used to doing things every quarter. Um, so do we have to talk about it? You know, do we have to upgrade every quarter? Do do we not? Um, what, you know, this isn't so much a, a myth, but I think there's certain perceptions that are floating around about, do I always have to be on trunk because I, I, you know, I always have to be on the very latest and greatest or 
you know, what's the thinking around that going on in the community? Because there, there's a little bit of a mismatch between people wanting the latest and greatest, which is great, and being capable of dealing with the latest and greatest. Or, you know, is the latest and greatest going to be stable enough for their environment? Yeah, and, and there's also, you know, in the latest and greatest kind of there's a there's an approach to, you know, sort of how patches are handled and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think it's it's maybe it works for you, um, but it's not necessarily here's definitely what you want to do. And I, I think kind of like a kind of sub bullet off of this is, like you said, it, and it's all you, you hear this in, in open source projects all the time. And, and the one I always love is like, oh, is this is a fork. And it's like, well, I mean, that that's just basic sort of. Um, you know, this is pretty basic, like GitHub stuff, like one one like, well, you, you make a fork and then you, you do pull requests and like, this is how it works. Um, you know, that that's kind of a normal thing. So yeah, sure. Like, unless you're literally downloading that, you know, main repo from trunk, um, it's, it's quote a fork, you know, sometimes even sometimes, uh, tags, release tags and stuff are, are, are technically forks. Um, I think what, what they, what they really mean is, you know, when someone says that what they really mean is, Something that's you know wildly divergent from you know what the main community is doing. So hey, we we went this separate route a while ago, and then as the main community picks up, we have to we have to do a lot of work to bring those things over to our whole separate branch yep. that's sort of divergent from the the main. Um, having you know forks pull off each version is is a super normal open source thing, and and uh, and. Um, you know, version control systems. Yeah, I, I think you know we we still we do still see some things. Uh, you know, and we're going to get into sort of how numbers and stats matter in open source. But you know, we still see some things about like, hey, uh, you know, the latest version of of Cube is out, and uh, you know, this many days later, um, you know, our implementation, our service, or whatever had that available. And and you know, that's that's cool. Whether that metric matters or not, kind of depends on the the implementer. Um, I think the other thing we're going to start to see more and more of in 2018 is um, a couple of things. Number one, um, you know, do we start to see kind of a, a long-term support strategy or sometimes called an LTS strategy from Kubernetes? I know that that concept has been kicked around quite a bit of, you know, there are going to be customers who say like, this feels like it's stable enough. I don't necessarily need a lot of new features or the new features aren't coming out of the core code. They're going to come out of something else. Um, do I always have to upgrade? Can I skip a few? Um, and we, we've seen that with with various projects. We've seen it with Linux. We've seen OpenStack try and implement it. Uh, that'll be an interesting thing to watch because I think, um, you know, for a lot of companies, you know, upgrading is undifferentiated heavy lifting. Um, so, you know, do I always have to do it? And then the other one I, I think we've seen in in reality, even for the early implementations is, you can you can always have the latest and greatest until your implementation starts to have live customers and and then you know things tend to to float a little bit because you're responding to those customers you're adding some features that those customers specifically want or your customers are asking you to delay them and so i i think there is some some gap between the reality of just putting software out there and the reality of of having to maintain and support software for people that you know are using it in, in production yeah, I think it. Yeah, it's this sort of yeah, rubber meets the road. Like, oh well, I I upgrade my my, you know, lab or my laptop kube cluster kind of like every you know with every new commit. I was like, well, well, sure, but you want to do that? You know, it's sort of the um, you know OpenStack thing. Like, well, it works in DevStack, so we're cool. Right. Like, well, <laughs> well, no. Like, I'm you know running some giant cluster and and I have a lot of customers on it. We need to sort of do some more testing and and stuff like that. So I I think I think also the pace. 
of Kube, is, which is a good thing, is slowing from the standpoint of the, the changes aren't as dramatic with each release. Right. Um, because it's you were getting to a pretty stable core. Uh, and, and that's really the best best thing to happen for both customers and the community is like let's let's get a stable core and then you know do a lot of innovation around it and also in the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, and and even you know even within a release, I mean we've seen different companies have different policies about stuff. So you know I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know with OpenShift, you know if you were to take any Kubernetes release, there's always um, you know a few features that are GA for that new release. There are some which are like public or I'm sorry, beta. And then there's some who are like, you know, pre-alpha or whatever, right? There's sort of kind of a hierarchy of, you know, stability levels. And, and, you know, the number that are GA is typically pretty small. Um, you know, beta becomes a little bigger and then the, you know, the early stuff is, is a bigger number. Um, you know, from an open shift perspective, because again, we, we've kind of tried to focus around enterprise and stability. Like we turn off access to some of those, um, you know, really early things just because, uh, you know, we, we, it's not something that we're going to support necessarily. Um, other implementations, like I know we've talked, uh, I've talked to like Hen Goldberg who, who, uh, manages the GKE engine. Um, they allow access to some of those things. And again, there's not a right or wrong answer to those. They, they become, you know, do your customers need them? Do your customers demand them? Um, do you do you want to support them? Are you capable of supporting them? You know, are they best effort? Um, so again, I, I don't know that there's sort of a right answer to how frequently should I do upgrades? What should my upgrade path look like? Um, I think the the trick to this is going to be: Do you have the right tools to do it frequently? Because it's it's probably going to be more frequently frequently than you deal with today. Um, and you know, do, do you understand? You know, are you starting to build culture and process around just dealing with the fact that Kubernetes is going to be a, a more uh, evolving, uh, adapting type of technology. Yeah, I, I think that's the the kind of and there's the the key points there, right? Is one, you know, you should you should have an infrastructure and, and set up to update pretty regularly, even mm-hmm. if you don't actually do, because it's sort of like you know, infrastructure is code, you know, everything's well documented and automated. That's just good practice and good hygiene anyway. Yep. Uh, you may not push the button to do every upgrade, but you should be able to if if you so wanted to, because sometimes there's you know, something discovered that, you know, say a bad CVE or something like that. And you do are suddenly under a tight, tight time frame. So even if you're like, well, we're only going to upgrade once a year, so I'm not too concerned about it. You may suddenly have a week long deadline to get something in. So you should build for that. And then how often depends on, you know, your, your need, your environment, and you make that decision. There's no best answer of like, well, closest to trunk is best or only LTS releases are best or, or whatever. It's it's really dependent on your environment and, and just, you know, make a thoughtful decision on it. Yep. Yep. I will. Uh, I'll point out I had a chance to listen to a, a different podcast. It's called Software Engineering Daily. Um, and uh, a guy named um, uh, I read, everybody knows him as Redbeard. Um, uh, Brian from from CoreOS had gave a really nice there was a nice conversation about, you know, doing automated operations and, and how they would use Jenkins um, when they were at CoreOS as far as doing updates and so forth. So, again, it's a different perspective on, you know, how do you manage a more fast-moving environment and quick-moving environment. And, and you know, there's not one right answer. Some people are going to use Jenkins. Some people are going to use Ansible. Some people are going to use scripts. Some people are going to use, you know, whatever. Um, but, again, it's like you said, be be prepared for the for the environment because the, the environment is going to come more more frequently. Um, okay, so we, we sort of talked about that. Let, let's. I, I hinted at this idea of 
uh, you know, numbers and stats and things around, around, uh, open source. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because it's come up a few times, um, with different communities and, you know, how should people measure this? How do you want to cue this up? Cause I know that we, we both have some, some opinions on, on kind of stats and, and open source and, and how relevant they should be or shouldn't be. So I, I guess the, um, the uh, the thing I like, I would say to tee this up is like I said there there's there's quantitative and qualitative data right and as as nerds we like to try and turn as much things into quantitative as we can and uh, that's the uh, thing I always think of is the Deming kind of saying of you can't you can't uh, manage what you can't measure and we've totally taken it the wrong way by turning well that means we need to turn everything to a number so we can manage it when his point was actually there are some things you can't turn to numbers and you need to know that and and manage them anyway. Um, so I think kind of I've seen both ends of the spectrum here for me with with stats on open source, whether it's commits or lines of code or contributors or leadership in groups or whatever is, you know, there's that that innate desi- desire to to quantify, to come up with hard numbers and then put them in a slide deck and show them to customers and say, hey, we're, we do the most and, and things like that. And that's why you should work with us. We saw that a lot with OpenStack. And I've seen the backlash to that where it's like, well, just because you had a ton of commits or those commits weren't as important, it doesn't really show the true nature of the health of the community and who's contributing. And, and you know, there's there's it's totally true. And then you see to the other end where it's basically like, well, none of the numbers are useful. So you just have to go by my seat of the pants of, of telling you what the community's like. So obviously and personally, I feel like, you know, come somewhere in the middle where there, there's value to some of these numbers to get kind of a, a rough view in, in certain areas. But then it's not the be all end all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a couple of other takeaways. You know, the number one is, look, you know, you can listen to people's numbers, you can ignore their numbers. The nice thing is there are a lot of a lot of tools and sites out there that make this pretty transparent. So if if you want to dig into some numbers, like number of commits somebody's made, how long they've been involved with it, the velocity of how frequently they're doing updates, uh, you know, who's a top committer, like you can go see that stuff and, and you can kind of make your own decisions as to whether or not uh, those numbers are relevant, they're vanity numbers, they're vanity metrics. Um, you know, like it's, that's the nice thing about open source is it is very transparent, not only about the code, but um, you know, there are things like Stackalytics, there are things built into GitHub, there are other sites that, that track this sort of stuff. So, you know, make your own decisions about it. The other thing I'll say, and this is something that I've observed over the last, say, three or four years, is I think most people would agree that we've seen a distinct change in um, larger companies, in, in enterprise companies, not so much startups because they've always kind of adopted open source because it makes the right economic sense. But we've seen more enterprise types of companies who are comfortable with open source, um, are demanding open source, or at least they like the innovation that happens in open source. Um, and, and the trick to that is they, they like the, the technology, um, but they're not always as well-educated about kind of how communities work or, or they're not as well-educated about like, well, what's the difference between a community and a vendor? And, and so there's going to probably be more numbers that are thrown out there um, from vendors and and not, you know, some of it, it's going to be sort of puffing out their chest and saying, Hey, we're great at something, but sometimes it's, we have to provide some level of quantitative or even, you know, sort of qualitative numbers for, for customers because they're demanding it. It's it, their mindset, their buying process, their uh, acquisition process, their justification process requires more than just that was a cool demo, right? They're making a decision for something that's three years, five years, 10 years, whatever it might be. Um, so, it's it's fine to sort of ignore them, um, but because the market 
likes open source software, which is good for all of us, um, you have to realize that that customers are going to ask the questions and vendors are going to produce some numbers. And um, it's just the byproduct of the fact that open source is more popular. And it's a good thing and it can be looked at as a bad thing. It could be a bad thing sometimes. Um, but it is, it is a changing nature of um, open source is not just uh, – people being happy that they contributed code and, and we have, you know, a lot of events. I mean, there is a, a commercial element to this as well. And, and that's okay, I think. Yeah. And I, I think uh, along with that is, um, you know, what you, you're, you know, everyone has their own, you know, particular viewpoint. Uh, and you may look at say, say, let's pick, for example, individual contributor statistics of say mm-hmm. like number of commits by, you know, person, you know, Jane Doe or, or, or you know, John Smith, and it's like, oh, well, they, wow, this person has a lot of commits. And then you look into it. It's like, well, they, they worked on – well, that person's commits, you know, John's commits were on this this weird side part of the project that no one uses. And it's, it's a bunch of little commits and it's not really important. It's like, well, cool. That data is there. So you saw that and that's not important to you. For some people, that thing he's working on is pretty fringe, but it's it's super important to them. So they like that, you know, John Smith works for, you know, ABC company and, and, and clearly they have – you know, a lot of uh, interest and in, in stuff around that piece of the project. Um, so I think that's the the key thing is the transparency. I think high level numbers are helpful. You know, kind of it, it makes me think of sort of the Gartner Magic Quadrant back in the day of being like, as when I was a customer, I didn't go by like, well, I'm going to pick the 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 person that's you know company's farthest to the top right. To me, it was just more of like a give me a rough idea what the landscape looks like. Who's out there? Who's sort of you know the the five to ten companies that are the main players? Who's you know leading? Just give me like rough ideas, and then we'll go from there. But like, just give me the high end names. I feel like the the high level contribution numbers give you that like who's really involved here at any level. It's like. Oh, it's Google. It's Red Hat. Here's CoreOS. Here's you know these different companies. It's like, well, cool, but it's like, do we need to then? Are you gonna start splitting hairs? Or like, well, I'm only gonna talk to the number one through three contributors or something like that. Or you know, I think that's silly. You know, I had a um, you know, coming to the vendor side, one customer once talking about the Magic Quadrant, and they were kind of comparing two two companies that were on it, and someone got out a ruler and was like measuring the distance between the two <laughs> dots. And you're like, I don't think like there's no formula behind. Like they just dropped those dots there. There's no like formula to measure. Well, it's it's three inches better than their their dot kind of thing. And I think that's where you can get into you know you get yourself wrapped around the axle where versus like okay high level. Like look at the high levels, you know, who's actually involved in the community, who's not, who's – and I think the more interesting one to me personally is sort of like the change rate where it's like, yeah. hey, this company was doing nothing. Now they were doing a good bit less, you know, round and this and that. You know, it's like, oh, they're really investing here. Or, hey, this company's starting to drop off. They're they're still talking a big game, but they're, they're not really doing much. It's like, okay, like right. – and that may not matter to you, but it, it's good to know. And then, again, like I said, you can drill down to the details to know if the things they're working on are important to you and, and not – Yep. Yep. And, and you can see our projects still active or they, they've been sort of abandoned and all sorts of other things. So, well, listen, uh, you know, we went a little longer this time. We, like we said, we have uh, sort of a lot of things we wanted to get through. That's why we broke this up into two shows. Um, you know, folks, we would love to hear your feedback. You know, how many of those myths and, and misperceptions did, did we get wrong? Right. We, we, we feel like we were trying to be uh, fairly neutral, but you know, how many do you think we were too biased? Which ones did we get wrong? Um, what other myths and, and misunderstandings do you think are out there that, uh, you know, you're seeing a lot that frustrates you or that you feel like need to get uh, cleaned up. So, you know, ping us on, on Twitter, send us email. Um, all the details are in the show notes, but, uh, Tyler with that, I think we're going to wrap up this, this two part, uh, part two of a two part series. And, uh, 
thank everybody for listening and uh, as always sending feedback and stuff and you know ideas for new shows so with that folks we're gonna wrap it up and uh, we will talk to you next week